Well, find your notes that are entitled The Process of Biblical Change. And with our notes in front of us, and then not just this hour, but the day in front of us, let's pray and ask for God's help. Oh Lord, would you help us today to gain insights into your word, your ways, your desires for us. Help us to understand your word in a maybe a deeper and broader way than ever before. We pray for the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. And I pray for uh, those of us that are teaching, that you'd help us to be very clear and precise, help us to be uh, engaging, and Lord, particularly help us to be equipping so that these dear brothers and sisters in Christ would leave better prepared to minister your word to people that are hurting and to do it with confidence and skill and compassion. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you find your notes, please, that are entitled, The Process of Biblical Change. As we begin, I want to just remind you that counseling assumes the need for change. On this, there is general agreement, regardless of philosophical assumptions. Across all the 250-plus counseling theories, I mean, counseling assumes the need for change. People who think their life is perfect or they've got their act together don't typically make an appointment to see a counselor. Counseling assumes the need for change. However, once you move beyond that point, there is tremendous diversity around the issues of how to change, where to change, into what to change, why to change, and who is to change. Huge diversity. Well, thankfully for us, God has clearly addressed these issues in his word. And one statement I'd like you to consider is this. Counseling is primarily theological work. Counseling is primarily theological work. That's why you want to be reading and studying the scriptures, trying to understand theology. It's why I hope you'll buy a, a theology book, and I'll make some recommendations toward the end, but you want to grow in your understanding of theology because at its core, counseling is theological work. So uh, as we talk about the process of change, what I've done is I've taken certain parts of the um, standards of doctrine from the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, and I'm going to direct your attention to just eight of them. And I'd encourage you later to go back and just review the whole doctrinal statement. It is very, very helpful. But as we're thinking about the process of change, there's eight key areas that I think are very pertinent for us to consider. So uh, bear with me, please, as I try to, to go through these. First of all, I want us to talk about the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, He exists as one person with two distinct natures, fully divine and fully human, without any mixture of the two. He was born of a virgin. He lived his entire life on earth without transgressing the law of God, thus earning righteousness for his people. He suffered a violent death on the cross to pay for the sins of his people. He rose miraculously from the grave on the third day as Lord and Savior, demonstrating his victory over sin, death, and the devil. He ascended bodily into heaven where he reigns over all creation and where he actively upholds and intercedes for his people as his bride, the church, awaits his glorious return. And as I said yesterday, solid biblical counseling is Christ-focused. All right? Now, moving on. Number four, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the eternal third member of the Trinity. He is the person who convicts of sin and who indwells Christians. He regenerates believers and empowers them to live the Christian life, to understand the scriptures, and to worship Jesus Christ. He is thus essential to the change sought in biblical counseling. He is the sovereign God who equips believers with gifts of service to do ministry in the church. He is the promised counselor who continues the work of the wonderful counselor, Jesus Christ. Number six, the doctrine of man. 
God created man out of the dust and breathed life into him so that he became a living person. Human beings are made in the image of God and were created by him to be the pinnacle of creation. God made mankind in two complementary genders of male and female who are equal in dignity and worth. Men are called to roles of spiritual leadership, particularly in the home and in the church. Women are called to respond to and affirm godly servant leadership, particularly in the church and home. God created the human person with a physical body and an immaterial soul, each possessing equal honor and essential to humanity. The Bible depicts the soul as that which motivates the physical body to action. These constituent aspects are separable only at death. The great hope of Christians is the rest is the restoration of the body and soul in a glorified existence in the new heavens and new earth. Man is by design a dependent creature standing in need of divine counsel to serve God and to be conformed into the image of Christ. The doctrine of sin. God created mankind in a state of sinless perfection. But the human race fell from this state when Adam willfully chose to rebel against God and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Since that time, every human being except Jesus Christ has been born in sin and separated from God. Every element of human nature is inherently corrupted by sin so that mankind stands in desperate need of the grace of God to be cleansed from sin by the Holy Spirit through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Sin increases the need for all counseling as people seek ministry to resolve problems in living caused by their own sin, the sin of others, and the consequences of sin in the world. In other words, as counselors, we deal with both sin by the counselee or by other people affecting them, but also just the fact that we live in a broken world and they're suffering. Counselors don't deal, biblical counselors don't deal just with sin. We deal with sin and suffering. Okay. All right, moving on. Number nine, <clears throat> the doctrine of regeneration. Regeneration is the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit where he transforms the hardened heart of a sinner into the soft heart of a believer who loves God and obeys his word. It is what makes the new life in Christ possible. Regeneration, along with the God-given gifts of repentance and faith, is granted solely by grace, resulting in all the attendant evidences of our great salvation in Christ. Uh, number uh, 10, the doctrine of justification. Justification is the sovereign declaration of God that the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been imputed to those who have trusted in his sinless obedience and his substitutionary atonement on the cross for their salvation. When God justifies a person, he no longer treats him as a sinner, but reckons, reckons him to possess the righteousness with Jesus, which Jesus Christ earned on his behalf. The declaration of justification does not come through any past, present, or future merit of the sinner. Justification is based exclusively on the merits of Jesus Christ and is received through faith alone. And I would add, and it is a one-time event. Number 11, the doctrine of sanctification. Sanctification is a joint work between God and man, where God supplies grace for Christians to grow in obedience to Christ. While Christians are made holy in a definitive sense at conversion, it still remains for them to grow in holiness. This work of grace requires believers to utilize by faith the normal means of grace, such as Bible reading, prayer, thought renewal, and fellowship in the context of the local church. Christians will experience real progress in growing more like Christ, yet this work will be incomplete in this life. The work of counseling is fundamentally 
the work of helping Christians to grow in this grace of sanctification. And then we'll move on to number 14, the doctrine of the Great Commission. The church has been called to go into the world with the task of evangelism and discipleship. In giving this commission, Jesus requires his people to use their conversations to point people to Christ in evangelism and to build people up in Christ in discipleship. The Great Commission necessitates that all faithful counseling conversations must have Jesus Christ as their ultimate goal. Our Lord and Savior does not give believers the option to avoid counseling conversations or to avoid directing those conversations toward Jesus. The commitment of Christians to the Great Commission and to faithful biblical counseling is therefore one and the same. Again, uh, just to summarize, I said, at its core, counseling is theological work. It's your view, your worldview, how you understand truth, what you understand truth to be. That's the lens through which you're looking, not just at your own life, but at the people you're trying to help. Okay. And later, I would encourage you to go back and review these. Later, as some of you, I hope, will pursue ACBC certification Meditating on the ACBC doctrinal statement can help you in answering many of the questions. Now, we're talking in this session on the process of change. And I want to remind you that this is a biblical counseling training conference. This is not just a Bible conference. We're going to talk about the Bible in every session. But this is a biblical counseling training conference. So we're trying to equip you on how to take biblical truths, biblical principles, some wise methodologies, and the goal is that you will leave better prepared to minister the Word of God to people that are hurting and to do it with greater confidence, greater skill, and greater compassion than ever before. All right? So that's the the goal, because we could talk about any one of those doctrines for an hour, okay? But that's not the purpose of this hour. So now I want to say to you, Ephesians chapter 4 identifies five aspects of the change process that every counselee needs to to know. And Ephesians chapter 4 is a favorite of biblical counselors because in this chapter we see, just summarized in such a wonderful way, many of the truths that are critical to the whole change and growth process. You know, for many of us, we would think of 1 Corinthians 13 as the love chapter of the Bible, and we would think about 1 Corinthians 15 as the resurrection chapter of the Bible. Well, I want to suggest to you, Ephesians chapter 4 is the change chapter of the Bible. And uh, years ago, when I was uh, on staff at Faith uh, Church in Lafayette, Indiana, on their Monday training program, uh, I kept a Bible there that I called my counseling Bible, and it had a little bigger print than the Bible I typically carry with me, and it's a Bible I'd preached from for years and years, so it was well marked up and very familiar in my hands. And this is a little bit of an exaggeration, but not much. When I'd show up on a Monday, and I'd start getting set up for the the training we were going to be doing, and then the six counseling sessions I was going to have, and I'd open up my biblical counseling toolbox, and I'd pull out that Bible. If I just pulled out that Bible and threw it on the desk, it opened to Ephesians chapter (laughs) 4. Because that's the place I'd gone so many times to help people. And I just want you to know that that your life will be so enriched if you meditate carefully on the whole book of Ephesians. And Ephesians chapter 4 is the hinge on which the book of Ephesians turns. But anyhow, in this chapter, there's five things that every counselee needs to understand. So here we are. Number one, God wants you to be changing. Now, I say that because the Ephesians had been richly blessed in Christ. That's the point of Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3. And if you ever find yourself a little bit blue or a little bit down and you want a spiritual pick-me-up, I'd encourage you just to read thoughtfully and carefully Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Because Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, depending on how you outline it, it lists like 14 or 17 different blessings that are ours in Christ. That's the key phrase. And it's talking about our position and the blessings that are coming as a result of being in Christ. And the Ephesians have been richly blessed in Christ through 
And you see that in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. But in addition to that, the Ephesians have been blessed with Paul and Timothy as their pastors. I mean, can you imagine growing up in the, the that first century, and you're getting dressed on a Sunday morning, getting ready to head out to church, and you're saying to your one of your family members, well, I wonder what Pastor Paul has for us this morning. <laughs> I mean, marching off to hear Paul preach on a, worship, on a Lord's Day. When Paul leaves, he sends Timothy, his right-hand man, to be the pastor. So from the standpoint of pastoral leadership, we'd have to say, I mean, the Ephesians had it the best. And yet it's interesting, they were told to be growing and changing. And if the Ephesians needed to be growing and changing, then mark it down, every one of us needs to, as well as our counselees. Now let me show you why I suggested that Ephesians 4 is the change chapter in the Bible. Notice what happens. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. In other words, if all of these blessings are yours in Christ, then for goodness sake, live like it. Here's how, chapters 4, 5, and 6. And right away, he starts off by saying, if you're in Christ, it ought to produce some changes in your life. So this is followed by verse 13, which says we're to keep changing until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In verse 15, he says, but speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up. That's change. We're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 17 says, this I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their minds. He's calling them to change. Uh, even in the verses 22 to 24, which are my favorites and one of the ones that I focus on in the counseling session, he says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which has been corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. It's not just Ephesians chapter 4. In fact, it even goes over to chapter 5, verse 1, that says, Be imitators of God as beloved children. But it's not just Ephesians. It's not just Ephesians 4 that stresses this. Other scriptures talk about this as well. For example, here's a verse I'll bet a lot of you know. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away, and behold, new things have come. And Romans 12.1 and 2 talks about presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, which is your reasonable act of service. Now, I think we ought to recognize and acknowledge that change is hard, but we also, theologically, we have to say, change, yeah, change is hard, but it can take place because God's commands assume God's enablement. Sanctification is a cooperative effort involving both the work of God and the duty of man. That's an important statement. So, Change is hard, but God will help us. Ephesians 4 emphasizes change, but it emphasizes our part in the change and growth process. The book of Philippians talks about changing and growing, and Philippians emphasizes God's part in the change and growth process. So think about these verses. Philippians 1.6 says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. That ought to give us all some hope when we're trying to change. Or think about this one, Philippians 2.13. It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here's one you all know. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's in the context of talking about the challenges that come with facing financial prosperity, but also financial hardship. Either way, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Handling the the challenges that come with life and living. Change is hard, but it can take place because God's commands assume God's enablement. That's an important statement. The Bible describes God as being loving, kind, merciful, generous. I mean, he'd be none of those things. If he commanded you and me to change and grow, and we wanted to, we tried to, but we couldn't. God's commands assume God's enablement. So this is significant. Point F, the Holy Spirit is prominent in this work. He convicts, 
As John 16, 8 to 11 says, he indwells believers, John 14, and he also empowers them, John 14. That means, therefore, there is great hope for those who want to change. Now, let me just talk with you for a moment about a couple of verses. Wait, wait, don't don't turn the page yet. Think about this, because this is really significant to the counseling process, and this is one of the things that should lead you to having great joy as a biblical counselor. There is great hope for those who want to change and are willing to submit to the Scriptures and the work of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, it's talking about people who have sinned in a certain way so many times that they've become known for that sin. Okay, It says, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Well, we've already seen from our review of the doctrinal statement that God saves sinners. So it's not talking about people who've committed incidents of sin. These verses are talking about people where there's patterns of unrepentant, blatant sin. All right? And it's what our world calls addictive behavior. All right? In our world today, um, our, our world basically has no real lasting answers for addictive behavior. In the secular counseling arena, when it comes to counseling addictive behaviors, kind of the gold standard that's looked up to is Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12-step program, all right? And over the years, I've had the opportunities of working with a number of people who at one point in their life were attending Alcoholics Anonymous, and I always ask them, well, tell me what your experience was like. And some of them say, well, I was court-ordered into AA, and others said my family demanded that I go. Some said I just recognized I had a problem, I had to get some help, and I heard about AA, so I started going to AA meetings and different circumstances. But when I ask them, tell me what it's like, you know, going to AA meetings, they all have basically the same story, that you know, you go and uh, people are friendly and uh, there be some teaching of some kind or other. But at some point in the meeting, you're going to be asked to introduce yourself, and you are taught to introduce yourself by stating your name and then saying, and I am an alcoholic. And you're encouraged to go to meetings as much as you need. And I've counseled people who went to one meeting a week. Some people went to two. Um, some went to three. I talked to one guy who's going to five meetings a week. I mean, it's almost like going to church, you know. And um, so, and they tell me, every time you go, at one point in the meeting, you're going to introduce yourself, give your name, and say, my name is so-and-so, and I am an alcoholic. And you are taught to do that and to keep going to AA meetings indefinitely. And if you go to a meeting this week, at the right time, you introduce yourself and you say, I, my name is such and such, and I am an alcoholic, even if the last time you consumed booze was eight or ten years ago. You still introduce yourself as an alcoholic. you know why? Because at the core of their system, they don't really think you can change. At the core of their system, they think the best you can do is to learn to control it. And one of the ways of learning to control it is to remind yourself of the problem. What a hopeless system. And that's the gold standard. Now, compare that to biblical Christianity. The next verse says, and such were some of you, but not anymore. It says, but you were, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. There is great hope for those who want to change. And I just would encourage you to be so personally encouraged by that in your own struggles for change and growth. So God wants you to be changing. This is significant because some people come to counseling and in reality... They are not coming because they want to change. They want their circumstances to change. Or they want their spouse to change or their kid to change. And one of the things that we find ourselves needing to say to a lot of our counselees, God wants you to change. Now, God is not interested in just any kind of change. God wants you to be changing to be more like his son. Note carefully how this is emphasized in these verses. Chapter 4, verse 1 says... I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. What that verse means is, how many of you call yourself a Christian? This verse says, act like it. Act like Christ is what it means. 
Uh, verse 15 says, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who's the head, even Christ. Uh, verse 34 says, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and, and holiness of the truth. Um, <clears throat> Verse 32 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. In chapter 5, verse 1, be imitators of God as beloved children. Um, you know, think also about Romans 8, uh, 28 and 29. And let me just make this point. Uh, I just would exhort you that you get Romans 8, 28 underlined in your Bible and verse 29. Most Christians know a little bit about verse 28. Hardly anybody knows anything much about 29. And if that's true of you, I want you to change. And uh, I want to exhort you, do not quote Romans 8.28 by itself. If you do, you will misapply what it means. Your application will be horizontal when Romans 8.28 and 29 go together and your application ought to be vertical. Here's what Romans 8.28 and 29 says. And we know... That God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Wise Christians, wise biblical counselors understand that our God is so great, so powerful, that no matter what life is giving us right now, our God can take whatever it is right now, and somehow, some way, He can use it to help us take one more step toward the ultimate great goal of becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the truths that can be so hope-giving to counselees to help them understand that, yeah, you're in a mess, and what you're experiencing is terrible. I feel bad for you, but here's the good news. Somehow, some way, our God is so great, so powerful, He can even use that mess to help you grow to be more like Jesus. That's what it's talking about. Or think about... <clears throat> Uh, Romans 8, 28 and 29, but also think about Colossians 1, 28, which says, and we proclaim him. This is Paul's philosophy of ministry statement. He says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man. Why, Paul? That we may present every man complete in Christ. The goal is God wants you to be changing, but not just any kind of change. God wants you to be changing, to be more and more like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The expectation is that you will be increasingly conformed to the image of Christ in your thoughts, in your motives, and in your actions. Now, if you're following the development of the outline, you ought to be, be sensing the pressure building. God wants you to be changing, to be more and more like His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how do you do that? Well, God wants you to be changed. You'd be more like His Son by putting off the old self. Verse 22 says that in reference to your old, the old ways of life, that you lay aside the old self, which has been corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. Let's unpack that verse. When the Bible talks about the old self or the old man, it's referring to the habits of thinking and acting that your corrupt nature adopted. Basically, the old man or the old nature or old self is that constellation of habits, attitude, responses, perspectives, just all that package of how you looked at life and how you handled life B.C., before Christ in your life. That's the old self. And the Scripture is saying we got to lay aside that whole approach. The term lay aside means to strip off, as in the case of old filthy clothes, it emphasizes personal responsibility for change. Now, some of you may have come from a theological background where you were taught that man is so bad that we can't do anything to advance our lives spiritually and we just need to let loose and let God. That is false teaching. This verse is absolutely clear. It says, you lay aside the old self. All right. Later we're going to see, he says, you put on the new self. I've already shown you, Philippians emphasize God's going to help us. But sanctification is a joint effort between God and us. We have personal responsibility for that. Notice that he describes the old self as being corrupt, it's spoiled, it's contaminated, uh, it's rotten, perverted, or evil. And then notice in verse 22, he talks about the deceitful lust, or depending on how you're, what version you're using, sometimes it's translated deceitful lust or the lust of deceit. 
A lust is a strong uh, is a strong desire of any kind that motivates behavior. A strong desire of any kind that motivates behavior. Now, uh, I'm going to go off on a little bit of a rabbit trail. It, it's pertinent, but we're going to come back to the notes in just a minute. I want to do a continuum, and um, I need you to work with me right now. We're going to start here. We're going to end up over there. All right, so let me do this. How many of you have a desire for money? All right, that's an interesting response. <laughs> I saw a few hands go right up like that. And then I saw some others. <laughs> and then there's a whole bunch of you just looking at me like, okay, now. I'm just getting to know this guy, and see the kind that picked somebody out of the audience and embarrassed them. Now, I would predict that with a little bit of more time for thought, that all of you put your hand up. I mean, I'll tell you, my hand's up. Okay? In our culture, if you don't have some money, you're really in a tough spot. If you don't have some money, you're not going to take care of your own physical needs. You won't be able to care for the people you love and want to be a blessing to, you won't be able to support any ministry uh, that you're interested in. And if you don't have any money in our culture, you're not going to be much of a witness for for Jesus Christ. All right? It's a desire for money and the blessings that come with having some money that prompts most of us to get up and go to work through the week. And it's what prompts most of us to try to be good employees so we stay employed. And it's what prompts a lot of us to get a little more education so that we can get a better job and earn more money so we can, you know, experience some more personal blessings and be a blessing to others and so forth. So I think I've made the case that if you have a desire for money, I mean, someone asks you, you have a desire for money, put your hand up. Okay? And there's a lot of scriptures that talk about, uh, that encourage us to have a biblical work ethic. All right? So generate, working hard and generating some income is a very honorable thing. So having a desire for money is legitimate. One theologian years ago, over 100 years or so ago, observed, he said, what gets most of us humans into trouble is not what we want, but how badly we want it. So a desire for money, if not kept within the guardrails of biblical teaching and biblical principles, a desire for money can grow and become so strong in a person's life that it becomes what the Bible calls a lust. The Greek word epithumia. And epithumia refers to a strong, passionate desire that motivates your behavior. And epithumia is used in both a positive and a negative way in the scriptures, primarily in the negative. One of the positive places that it's used is in First Timothy when it talks about a person having a desire for the office of a pastor. That's epithumia. Okay? But most of the time, it's used in this, it's talking in Ephesians 4.22 about deceitful lust, deceitful epithumia. In other words, legitimate desires that are not kept within biblical guardrails or boundaries and becomes a, a desire for money now has become not just a desire for money, a demand for money. And it's so strong in my life that it affects how I look at people, who I try to be around, what, I observe what kind of car they're driving, where they live. Uh, who do they know? Who can they connect me with? And instead of loving people, we start using people. You see that? Yeah. Now, here's the point. I could have asked you, and I don't want you to respond now, just think with me. I could have asked you, how many of you have a desire to be loved? How many have a desire to be respected? How many of you have a desire for a nicer car? How many have a desire for a Spouse, how many desire for kids, or how many have desire for better kids, or uh, <laughs> I, I think one of the ways that we are created in the image of God that is seldom talked about is that just like we're people with multiple desires. Well, the Bible teaches God's a God of multiple desires, too. All right? 
So we are people of multiple desires. And any of those things that I mentioned, I could have added a whole bunch more. How many of you have a desire for sexual gratification? How many of you have a desire for friends? I mean, just the list goes on. The issue is not so much what we want. The issue is how badly do we want it? And what the scriptures are saying is the old nature is influenced by lust. Basically, the old man, to summarize the way the old man approaches life, the old man is feeling-oriented. He just focuses on his feelings, just does what he wants to do at the moment. By the way, I think this helps explain a lot of what is sometimes called uh, motiveless crimes. Why'd they do that? Answer, they just wanted to. Okay? Now, back to the notes. A lust... We're, point three, subpoint D, lust is a strong desire of any kind that motivates behavior. Point E, they are deceitful because they promise what they cannot deliver. For instance, peace and joy. They deceive us. You know, you get that brand new car that you not just wanted, but you said, I got to have it. And then the insurance bill shows up, the adjustment. Then you get your new bill for the license plates. And then some person at Walmart opens their door and dings the side of it. And then all you discover that what you own now owns you. See? Well, point E, point F, excuse me. Repentance, then, is a change in the inner man, which leads to a change in the outer man. Efforts to put off the old ways of thinking and acting and motives are manifestations of true repentance. So we're talking about the process of change. The process of change starts with a counseling understanding. I can't keep living the way I used to. I have got to consciously work at laying aside that whole approach to life. i got to put that away from me. All right, let's move on. Number four in our outline. In biblical Christianity, it's not enough that you stop doing what's wrong. You've got to start doing what's right. So number four says, God wants you to be changing, to be more like his son by putting off the old self and putting on the new self. Verse 24 says that in reference to your former manner of life, you, you, you put on the new self, which is created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. The new self, the new man, refers to the habits of thinking, the motivations, the behavior that emulate Christ. To put on means, as in the case of clean clothes, it means to adopt new ways of thinking and acting, and it emphasizes personal responsibility for change. Verse 22 talks about righteousness, holiness, and truth. Those three words describe the Lord Jesus Christ. He was righteous, holy, and true. But those three words also describe the Bible. The Bible is righteous, holy, and true. So what the scriptures are saying is we're to be laying aside a feeling-oriented, lustful approach to life. We're to be adopting a lifestyle that is Christ-focused and focused on obeying the scriptures. Point D says the new self will be oriented toward pleasing God by obeying his word. Put off and put on. Now, the challenge is what does it take to do that? Well, Number five in our outline, God wants you to be changing, to be more like his son by putting off the old self and putting on the new self because of a changed mind. One of the shortest verses in the New Testament is Ephesians 4.23, and that verse is just pregnant with wonderful teaching and help uh, for all of us as Christians and especially as biblical counselors. The verse says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Let's take that verse apart. When the Bible talks about mind, the term mind is synonymous with heart, soul, or spirit in the New Testament and is to be viewed as the center of thought, understanding, belief, motives, and actions. The Bible depicts the soul as that which motivates the physical body to action. I'd encourage you to put a star beside point A. For a lot of people, this is a a new emphasis If I could have your eyes for just a moment, the Bible talks about the heart, mind, soul, spirit. All right? Look at me. They're all just synonyms. It's just talking about the same thing. Okay? Just different words. 
And we do that in our conversations commonly. Recently, I was with uh, some other Christian brothers, and we were uh, a fellow had asked us to advise him about a potential job change and everything. We had this discussion and so forth. And when we got done, uh, one of the fellows was going to lead in closing prayer, and I was struck as he prayed for our brother and the decision is coming. He prayed that God would give him wisdom, and he, and he said, and Lord, I pray that you'll lead, guide, and direct my brother in his decision-making. Now think about that. Lead, guide, direct. It's all the same thing, isn't it? But we do that normally, okay? It's just different words, a little different nuance and so forth. Well, in the scriptures, the Bible talks about inner man issues and outer man issues. And it just happens to use four terms to talk about inner man issues. So point B in your notes, this inner person is the real you that God sees and interacts with. And biblical counseling, one of the joys of being a biblical counselor is we can go for the inner man. You realize that every system of counseling, other than biblical counseling, the very best that they can do is rearrange the flesh. They cannot change the inner man to be more pleasing and honoring to God. Only biblical counseling can do that. Then point C, the scripture says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. The word translated renewed means to be rejuvenated, to be made youthful, to be renovated. Renovation always involves significant change. All right? And uh, so, for example, let, let's say you're going to renovate your kitchen, and uh, we'd come in and we'd take out the refrigerator, the stove, the dishwasher, and uh, the cabinets come down, the, they're, they're kicking out, the floor treatment comes up, the lighting fixtures come down, and when the old is out, it's been renovated, right? No, it's an ugly mess then. But when the old is gone and you've got new flooring, new cabinets, new wall treatment, uh, new ceiling treatment, new lights, new refrigerator, stove, dishwasher. When the old is gone, new is in its place, it's been renovated. Renovation always means significant change. And <clears throat> I think that one of the reasons why many people will come for counseling but don't change is because they come and we're calling them to renovation. They resist that, but they settle for remodeling. Now, if we remodel your kitchen, what would we do? Well, get rid of the old refrigerator, buy a new one, clean up the old stove, paint the ceiling, change the wallpaper, maybe put new knobs on the drawers, uh, maybe change the flooring. When you remodel, it's the old made to look better. And I'd say to you, there's a place for remodeling when it comes to kitchens. There's not a place for remodeling when it comes to your life and my life and our counselees' lives. When I speak about this, it reminds me that familiar passage in Isaiah 55. You remember it where God is saying that he says at one point, he says, as far as the heavens are above the earth, so far are my ways above your ways. Remember that one? Folks, in Ephesians 4.23, God is saying to you and me, come on up. Come on up. Big time change. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now look at that, that phrase, the spirit of your mind. I love this. This is so neat. The spirit of the mind is that which gives the mind both its bent and its material of thought. It does not refer to some superficial change of opinion on points of doctrine or practice. Here's what it means. The spirit of the mind refers to the bent of the mind. And if you've had any basic training in scriptural teaching and you know something about the doctrine of man or the doctrine of sin, you understand that we all come into the world, we're just bent towards sin. I mean, nobody has to teach a child how to lie, cheat, steal, or hit their brother or sister, or say no. I mean, it's just in them. And the reason is, kind has produced kind. It was in their parents. Okay? So that's just the bent of the mind. We're just bent towards sin. Okay? Well, what the Scripture teaches is that through justification... And sanctification, progressive sanctification, through being born again and then growing and changing spiritually through the preaching, teaching of the word or Bible reading or med meditating or memorizing, going to conferences like this. God teaches that the spirit of the mind can change by his grace. So we can come to a point where the things we love now are the things we used to hate. Things we hate now we used to love, right? And my guess is... Uh, 
we had time for testimonies. We don't, but all across this room, I bet there's some people. So, yeah, that was true of me. You know, years ago, I was a mess, and um, I ended up going to counseling. I got saved, been growing since then, and here I am at a conference wanting to help people. And if people who knew me 20 years ago can't believe what I'm doing now. Well, if that's somewhat like your story, what that indicates is the spirit of your mind has been changed. Now, just think about that. Isn't that wonderful? That a person can be changed so deeply at the very core of their being that their bent has been changed. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind, the bent of your mind. Now, as a person is changed in the spirit of their mind, that will affect their habits. A habit is something that allows us to do things automatically, unconsciously, skillfully, and comfortably. Renewed thinking will lead to putting off the old self, that's dehabituation, and putting on the new man, rehabituation. Christ followers are called to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And then point G, one cannot simply break a habit, he must replace it. Now, get your blank filled in, and then if I could have your eyes. This is an important counseling concept. God is calling us to put off the old man, the old ways of thinking and acting before we came to Christ, put on the new man, new ways of thinking and acting that are like Christ, that are in obedience to the Scripture. The key to doing it is transformed thinking, transformed heart, changed desires, changed thinking. And so here's a key counseling principle. You put off the old man by putting on the new man. God does not call us to break bad habits. That's why New Year's resolutions fail for most of us by January 15. We're trying to break a bad habit, okay? Uh, <clears throat> one cannot simply break a habit. He must replace it. Now, watch, look at the screen. Let me show you this. In Ephesians 4.25, the Scripture says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, in other words, laying aside lying, Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for your members of one another. You notice that? You put off by putting on. Or watch this one. Verse 28. And he who steals must steal no longer, performing with his hands what is good, so that he may have something to share with one who has need. So, J. Adams, in his writings, asked the question, when is a thief no longer a thief? Most people say, well, when he's not stealing. No, he may be just inactive right then. When is a thief not a thief? When he's got a job and he's working diligently and hard enough that he's generating enough income to take care of himself and he's given to other people. See the difference? It's not enough that you stop doing what's wrong. You've got to start doing what's right. It changes everything. God doesn't call us to break habits. He calls us to replace them. We put off by, we put off by putting on. All right, moving on. Point H in our notes. The goal is to have heart desires, motives, or thinking patterns, behaviors changed so drastically that our counselees will come to live like Jesus, like Jesus automatically, unconsciously, skillfully, and comfortably. That is real change. Those are five truths every counselee needs to understand. Now, the question is, again, this is a counseling training conference. Uh, how do you communicate those in a counseling session? Well, let me show you a diagram that I've used uh, hundreds of times with people to help them understand some of these basic truths. And what I usually do is I draw a little simple diagram on the whiteboard, and then I draw an arrow off to the side, and I explain verse 22, where the Bible says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which has been corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. And I point out to my counselees that the old self is feeling-oriented. we got to lay aside just doing what you feel like doing when you feel like doing it. That's marked of the old man, and it's motivated by lust. What motivates our feelings are the things that we're lusting for. 
And I would have them, of course, read the scripture. I would have explained it. But then I would use this diagram to say, here's a way to help you remember this. And my custom is I give my counselees a blank eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, a pen if they don't have one or don't have a notebook with them. And I say, here, draw this diagram. I'm going to draw this for you two times. That's all I'm going to do it. After that, you've got to draw it for me and be able to explain it. And uh, I say to them, and you're going to have to, I'm going to ask you to memorize Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, word perfect, and be able to explain it using this diagram. So here's the first part. You've got to put off the old self. Then in biblical Christianity, it's not enough you stop doing what's wrong. You've got to start doing what's right. Verse 24 says we've got to put on the new self. The number one characteristic of the new self is that it's scripture-oriented and it's motivated by the love of Christ. And then, of course, the question is, okay, what does it take to do that? What it takes to do it is, verse 23, renewed thinking. Uh, A while back, I had the opportunity, I was assigned a case where a, a woman came in for counseling. She thought she had a good marriage until she discovered to her amazement that her husband was committing adultery with a co-worker. Her world caved in around her, and she came to the training counseling training center where I was working at the time and uh, <clears throat> she was she I mean she was just hurting big time she was a Christian she responded beautifully to the change of growth plan I gave her and everything and I met with her up three times and then on the fourth session her husband showed up with her unannounced and the church they were in was a faithful church and had got right after him and calling him to repentance and rebuking him. And and somewhere along the line, he had repented, and he's back in the home. But the church had encouraged him to join her in counseling to try to address the issues that maybe set the stage for the unfaithfulness and to help strengthen the marriage going forward. So here he shows up unannounced. And um, I made the decision in that session, based on his story of repentance, that I decided to teach this diagram. And as I started it, and I taught the diagram, and then I said to them, I'm going to ask you uh, to be able to, to draw this for me in the future. I'll draw it one more time next week, but then you've got to start drawing it for me. And I want you to memorize Ephesians 4, 22, 24, word perfect, be able to quote it. And I said to them, this will help you in multiple ways. It's going to help you to understand what hap- contributed to the mess in the past. It's going to help you in diagnosing your current struggles. And number three, I predict that if you'll me- memorize the verses, memorize the diagram, you'll be able to use this to help somebody in the future. And I still remember the wife laughed at me, and she said, Oh, Randy, I love your optimism. And understanding what she'd been through and the betrayal and all her heartbreak she'd been through. I understood that. So I continued to work with them, and uh, they learned the verses and learned how to draw the diagram. And we get down to session, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, somewhere in there. And we're going down the hallway, and she says, hey, i got some good news for you today. And I said, okay, great. We get in the session, I have prayer, and I said, okay, what's the good news? She says, I finally did it. I said, okay, you finally did what? And she said, you know, I used the diagram to help somebody. I said, well, tell me about it. And she says, well, <clears throat> she said, last week, she said, I was at the grocery store, and I ran into one of my best friends. We used to get together regularly, but with all the mess I've been going through, I've kind of lost contact with her. And said, so we hugged. I said, we got to get together. So she said, this last week we met, uh, later we met down here at the road at Bob Evans Restaurant, restaurant that's common back our way. And uh, she says, we had placed our order. The waitress had walked away. I remember reaching across the table, grabbed my friend's hand, said, it's so wonderful to be with you. I've missed you. Give me an update on what's happening in your life. And she says, my counselee says, before I know it, my dear friend is telling me a story about what's going on with her husband and her kids. And I am stunned. I would never have expected that from this woman or that family. And before I know it, she's bawling. I'm bawling. A little bit later, the waitress comes, sets the food down. We don't even touch it. She's just pouring out her heart. She is so broken up. And as she's wiping her tears and telling me the story, it's like a voice was saying inside me, do something to help her. Do something to help her. And uh, my counselee says at one point after she was kind of slowing down a little bit and she stopped to wipe her tears and blow her nose one more time, she's, I said to her, I said, well, 
We won't talk about it now, but sometime I got my own story, Whitewater Days, to tell you, because things have been rough at our house, too. But she says, as a result of that, I got into biblical counseling, and I've learned some things I had never known before from the Bible. I said, let me show you that. And my counselee says to me, you know, Randy, at Bob Evans, they have those paper placemats. She says, I lifted up my food. I pulled out that paper placemat, turned it upside down. And she said, I fished in my purse, got out a pen, and I drew this stick figure, and I drew the put-off put verse 22 up there, and I talked about being feeling-oriented, motivated by lust, and uh, told her that she can't keep living by her feelings. And she said, and I really stressed that to her because if she did what she felt like doing, she's probably going to commit a crime against her husband and go to jail for it. So I really told her, you can't live by your feelings. <laughs> and then uh, <clears throat> she said, I talked to her about putting on a life that's focused on Christ and said she's been a Christian for many years, but she drifted in her faith. And wasn't attending church, wasn't reading her Bible, and I really exhorted her about that. And I talked about the importance of change thinking. And uh, maybe she'd want to get back into, get, get into biblical counseling, and she's got to get to church, and maybe she can come to church with me on Sunday and so forth. And, and my counselee says, you know, I'm just winding down, and I quoted all three verses. And as I'm finishing up, she said, all of a sudden I'm kind of awkward. She says, all of a sudden I realize I've never talked to my friend like I'm talking to her right now with that kind of authority. And she said, the other thing I noticed was she'd quit crying. And I'd quit crying. And she says, uh, I was kind of self-conscious, and I just said, I'm just so thankful what God's done in her life. And she says, I picked up my placemat to put it back under my food, and my counselee reached, my friend reached across the table and said, I want that. And my counselee says, Randy, my friend folded up my placemat from Bob Evans and took it home. <laughs> That's the kind of counseling I want to do. And I'll bet that's the kind of counseling you want to do. Where somebody who needs to grow and change ministers the word of God to somebody who needs to grow and change, who turns around and ministers to somebody else who needs to grow and change so that God gets the glory. Right? That leads me then to these concluding thoughts. It is imperative for biblical counselors to thoroughly understand these truths. These topics demerit, deserve careful, thoughtful reading, contemplation, and study. Number two, you will gain helpful insights by diligently seeking to apply these principles to your own life struggles. The best biblical counselors are first good counselees. If it's not working for you, don't export it. But it'll work for you if you'll humble yourself before God and His Word. And then number three, I would advise you to teach these, teach counselees how to change and grow before you call them to change. Many counselees want to change, they just don't know how. That's why this is such a critical doctrine. Why I encourage you to give careful study to it. Now let me finish by making some recommendations. Here are some resources that I suggest you use with counselees. Uh, the one on the left is Godliness Through Discipline by Jay Adams. It's an exposition of 1 Timothy 4, 7, and 8, which says discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Um, Help, I Want to Change It's by Jim Neuheiser. That's one of my favorite books right now, explaining the process of sanctification. And he talks about Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, our position in Christ, and then the indicatives, and then the imperatives, chapters 4, 5, and 6. It's an excellent little booklet. Um, and then the book on the right, little pamphlet on the right is called uh, What to Do When You Know You're Hooked. shows a guy shooting drugs, but it deals with habits. And uh, it's very, very helpful. And it's inexpensive. It's just an 8.5 by 14 printed on both sides. It costs like 33, 35 cents if you buy it retail. And you buy them in groups of 100 and get them for a lot less than that. So those are ones I would encourage you to use with counselees when you're trying to help them understand these things we've talked about in this session. Now, some of you are in positions where you lead uh, a, a personal or a small group study. Here's two resources I'd really encourage you to consider. Christ Formed in You by Brian Hedges is outstanding. And The Enemy Within is one of my favorite books. I was so helped by that by Chris Lungard. And both of these could be very helpful studies. If you want a, like a ladies' Bible study or a youth group study or small group at your house, whatever you might do. And then for biblical counselors, 
Here are four books I draw your attention to, and I want you to put a star beside the top two. A Theology of Christian Counseling by Jay Adams and A Theology of Biblical Counseling by Heath Lambert. If you're only going to buy one of those books, buy Heath's book. If you can afford two, get Jay's book too. The other is How Does Sanctification Work by David Pallison. It's very helpful. And Scripture and Counseling by Calvin and Jeff Forey. I'm one of the contributing author, chapter authors in that book. But, you know, you can't buy everything. You don't have time to read everything. So if you're only going to buy one, get Heath's book. And if you can buy two, get A Theology of Christian Counseling by Jay. Those will really, really help you. That's the process of biblical change.